So I won't do the introductions of our speakers, but just to say we're um, very excited that you could come here to tell us about Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico's not-so-natural disaster. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this uh, roundtable, Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico, not-so-natural disaster. Is this level okay? Do you want me yeah. to speak louder? Yeah, good, excellent. So uh, thank you very much to the Institute, to Kate also, and Maxine, that uh, she's not here, but in a way between the three of us, we started uh, talking, and it was possible to make uh, this happen. And uh, the main idea that we want to try to address today is, on the first hand, yes, to talk about the natural disaster caused by this big monster, Hurricane Maria, that hit Puerto Rico on September the 20th, uh, and also another hurricane that just two weeks before uh, was very close to the northeast of Puerto Rico, Hurricane Irma, also causing some, some damages. But to try to explain or try to understand some structural um, problems and challenges that were already happening in Puerto Rico, and that what Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Irma did was to make them even more evident, right? Um, so in a way, in other words, how a natural disaster unveiled a multiple set of vulnerabilities uh, that have been accumulated over decades and decades in, in Puerto Rico. So we are four uh, Puerto Rican academics based at the moment in, in the UK. I'm going to very, very briefly introduce the fourth of, uh, of us and then go directly to the, to the, to the topic. So to my left, uh, Patria Roman, senior lecturer in uh, media and creative industries at Lowborough, if I pronounce that. <laughs> yes, uh, university, the founder and chair of uh, Latin Elephant. Uh, then... Uh, at the end, we have uh, Melissa Fernandez Arrigoitia, yes, uh, lecturer in urban futures at Lancaster University. To my right, we have uh, Janiali Ortiz Camacho, sociocultural anthropologist, writer, researcher, and at the moment based in Cambridge. And my name is Gibran Cruz Martinez. I'm a postdoc at the University of Agder in Norway, and at the moment, I'm a uh, visiting research associate at the University of Oxford. Um, so today what we will do is to try to address or divide this roundtable in three main topics. Uh, well, we'll first start with an introduction, of course, move to the challenges to rebuild and reconstruct the Puerto Rican society. Then we'll go to address Trump media responses and the representation of crisis. And finally, we're going to try to end with a po in a positive note, highlighting the role of the community in the emergency response and the reconstruction of, of Puerto Rico. We will also be showing you some short videos to try to make this less boring or a bit more interactive. Um, and let's start with just a very short one that was published just one day after uh, Hurricane Maria, uh, Hurricane uh, Maria hit Puerto Rico. So this was uh, published by the New York Times. Now let's move to Janiali to start with a very brief 
uh, introduction on, on the case of Puerto Rico. Yes, good evening. Uh, we figured that it's important to contextualize, to explain a little bit what is Puerto Rico. So it's this uh, country that is not very well understand because it's, it has a very particular uh, political status and history. Puerto Rico, as you know, is part of the Caribbean and, and it's an archipelago actually, it's a, it's a few islands. Uh, it's officially known as the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. In Spanish, it's Estado Libre Asociado, and if you translate that, literally it means free associate state. So it's kind of have a, like a little crisis of identity. Um, and it has been on the United States uh, colonial rule since 1898. Until this day, even uh, that concept, that description of Puerto Rico as a colony uh, is, is problematic some, for some officials uh, in the United States, which they still prefer the less controversial but still quite confusing concept, unincorporated territory of the United States, to refer to Puerto Rico's uh, current political status. For these officials, Puerto Rico's colonial history was solved in 1952. What happened in 1952? Well, um, uh, this is when the Puerto Rico's constitution, uh, which created this um, legal fiction of the free associated state, went into effect, not without going through substantial changes that solidify U.S. colonial rule by protecting the interests of U.S. corporations and by diminishing economic and social rights for the citizens of Puerto Rico. It was implied that the citizens could not afford greater protections than those granted by the federal constitution. In this pluralistic legal system, it's quite clear who is subjugated to whom. So there are two reasons, uh, among others, of course, that prompted the U.S. yearning to establish this colonial rule uh, this colonial system in, in Puerto Rico. One is military and the other one is uh, economical motivations. During the, the mid-19th century, United States declared its intentions to rule international policy towards territories in the American continent. And due to its privileged geographical position, Puerto Rico became an attractive possession and the same happened with Spain uh, before U.S. After this acquisition, multiple military bases and the infrastructure to support them were constructed were built around the country. And even the American citizenship uh, was granted to Puerto Ricans just in time for its populations to be drafted to, to the First World War in 1917. And every conflict involving U.S. military ever since. Um, Puerto Ricans are propelled uh, to join the military, but are unable to vote in the elections for the president of U.S. or any voting congressperson. And in terms of uh, the first decision, there's some economy, and the first decision regarding Puerto Rican economy under U.S. rule was to allow unrestricted trade between Puerto Rico and the United States. Sugar production rapidly expanded to become the dominant economic sector marked by the presence of U.S. capital and a total orientation to the U.S. market. And that basically, it was not only agriculture, it happened with tourism, it happened with other industries. Puerto Rico became the perfect place 
to grow U.S. agricultural industries while exploiting a vast sea of its workforce. But once this scheme declined, another set of policies shifted the society from agrarian to industrial, and also attempted to showcase Puerto Rico as a capitalist success story in the Caribbean and in Latin America. This set of, this, uh, set of policies, uh, known as uh, Operación Manos a la Obra, on, in English is Operation Bootstrap, um, provided task exemptions to corporations in order to bring capital investment in the area of manufacturing. These tax exemptions and other financial incentives to mainland U.S. enterprises have been a constant aspect of Puerto Rico's economy ever since. And the clearest examples is the Section 936, uh, which was created in 1976 after the big uh, the oil crisis. Um, and it, 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 what it did it was to grant mainland corporations some tax exemptions from their income, from their earnings generated in Puerto Rico. So when that tax exemptions finally expired in 2006, Puerto Rico economy suffered. It was in shambles and, and has not recovered since. With that exception gone, and I'm sorry I'm going that fast, but it's like a crash course on Puerto Rico. <laughs> With that exception gone, uh, Puerto Rico's government turned to a special tax break um, as a U.S. Commonwealth, Puerto Rico can issue bonds. Uh, they're called, or they're, they're well known as the triple tax free. They're triple tax free. Uh, so this means that they're exempt from taxation from Puerto Rico, the U.S. government, and any U.S. state and municipality or municipality. Puerto Rico increasingly sold these bonds to pay for infrastructure. Um, projects, and many of these projects were white elephants, so they were unlikely to raise to enough revenue to compensate their, their backers. So the debt that is, is being also in the news um, and the economic recession that today haunt Puerto Rico's economy increase. Puerto Rico in general has been deprived of resources and capital to grow its local economy. The country imports most of the goods to cover its basic consumption needs. Just, by, just the food, 85% of the food that, that is needed for consumption is imported. These imports won't come cheap. Since 1920, Puerto Rico must follow the Merchant Marine Act, also known as the Jones Act. This law deals with cabotage and requires that all goods transported by water between U.S. ports be carried on U.S. flagships, constructed in the United States, owned by U.S. citizens, and crewed by U.S. citizens and U.S. permanent residents. Not only the Jones Act dramatically affects the cost of living in Puerto Rico, but also becomes lethal in the aftermath of devastation when immediate aid is needed and not provided. So in synthesis, the, re the relevance of the territory of Puerto Rico for U.S. authorities and the, its uses has varied over the years. But it has always been a paradise for exploitation and profit generation for mainland enterprises, even during crisis. And we are going to talk today about this hurricane in Maria more in depth and how it's not only our current crisis, but how it, it, the fact that it's happening in the midst 
of aggressive austerity policies make it even a, a bigger crisis. So let's, uh, let's go to the yes. next topic. Um, so uh, as Yaniali uh, stated in this uh, crash course on yeah. introduction <laughs> to Puerto Rico, um, Puerto Rico is a non-sovereign territory, right? This is the, 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 the typical name or the brand or the, uh, the, the, well, the United States and the world, that's the way that they know Puerto Rico. Um, in other words, it's basically uh, a colony and it's, it's harsh and, and, and difficult for many people to understand this. Uh, but in reality, if you have a country who's subordinated to the Congress of another country, they don't vote for the executive, they don't send any voting members, uh, and any law that is passed in this foreign country can be extended to, in this case, Puerto Rico without the approval, then I think that that's the easiest way or the easiest example to understand the colonial relationship between Puerto Rico uh, and the United States. Um, now, after Hurricane Maria, um, the negative externalities, if we can call it that way, of this colonial relationship becomes even more evident in several cases. I'm going to briefly highlight some of them. Uh, Puerto Rico fiscal autonomy, uh, which was used in the 1950s to take Puerto Rico out of the list of colonies, uh, and in a way was the, 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 the main power that Puerto Rico had to manage internally the, the Caribbean archipelago was taken away recently by the, by the US Congress when they implemented a group of seven people that colloquially in Puerto Rico we call La Junta to make reference to all the juntas that were in Latin America in the last century, uh, the Fiscal uh, Control Board. And this group of seven individuals have power over the finances of, of Puerto Rico. So every decision that had any impact on expenditure, on budget, has to be approved by, by this group of, of seven uh, individuals. Uh, meaning that the fiscal budget, the fiscal plan, as it is called, uh, is proposed by the government of Puerto Rico and needs to be approved by this group of, of seven individuals. Actually, yesterday, the governor uh, proposed the revised plan of the new fiscal uh, plan after, after Hurricane Maria, and now they get together and decide if they are going to approve it or if they are going to make some, uh, if they are going to propose some, some changes. So in a way, how does this lack of sovereignty affect the, the recovery process? So in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, uh, the Fiscal Control Board, the first thing that they said is, well, guys, you have $1 billion that you can spend on, on Puerto Rico. And I'm not saying that $1 billion is a lot or a little, but it's that a group of people that were not elected by the uh, citizens, well, by the people of Puerto Rico, were putting a limit on how much or how less does the elected government of Puerto Rico was able to invest in the disaster. But the impact of the Fiscal Control Board is not only on lack of sovereignty, but also in austerity measures that were proposed uh, before and that definitely had an impact in 
the crisis uh, caused by this disaster. Loss of jobs, more than a quarter in the formal sector uh, in the last uh, decade. Flexibilization of the labor market, uh, reductions in, um, in holidays from 15 to 6 uh, a year. Um, the reduction of the general fund of the University of Puerto Rico by 59%. Um, now you go to the university and you see many buildings closed uh, and it's very hard to find a place for lectures to be able to give uh, uh, a lecture. Um, closing um, around a quarter also of the public schools in, in, in Puerto Rico. So again, when the, when the country is experiencing this much austerity measures and a disaster like Hurricane Maria uh, occurs, of course the impact is uh, a lot harder than if the country were, uh, let's say, uh, economically health and, do, and doing uh, okay. Janielli uh, also mentioned the, the, Jones. the Jones Act. Uh, and so that you have an idea the impact that this act has in, in, in Puerto Rico, according to estimates of economists in Puerto Rico, this increase the price of products between 20 and 30% in comparison to the prices that you find in US mainland. But if you take a look at the food products, they are around 100% more expensive than what you find in uh, the US uh, mainland. And this Jones Act, in the case of the Hurricane uh, Maria, was, um, was causing, in a way, or, or limiting the ability of Puerto Rico uh, to recover, mainly because it, it made it even more difficult for, for people to mobilize aid from one place to the other. Why? Because you need to move that aid in the U.S. Merchant Marine Act. Uh, we cannot decide here in the U.K. to make a collection put everything in a boat and send it to Puerto Rico. Well, we really can, because this U.S. Merchant Marine Act, what prohibits or limits is what happens between Puerto Rico and the U.S., right? But if we decide to send a ship from here to there, it can enter. It cannot go to the U.S., but it can enter. But it has to pay a huge amount of import fees. And where does those import fees go? They don't go to the Puerto Rican Treasury. They go to the U.S. Uh, Treasury. Um, this lack of power also um, been limiting the ability of Puerto Rico to ask for more, uh, for international aid, for international support. Not being a, a, a sovereign country or not being part of a sovereign country, they don't have representation in uh, UN, um, in the Organization of American States, in order to be able to go there, talk, and ask for more uh, support. They were not able to receive aid from other countries in the Caribbean who offered help, uh, especially brigades of engineers and people to help with the reconstruction of the power, because it was not granted. And in addition, even though I will never recommend, or I will, yeah, well, will, will recommend the countries to do this as a very, very, very last resource, Puerto Rico was not able to go to the IMF to ask for uh, a loan because they are not a sovereign country. So there are many, many things that limit 
the ability of Puerto Rico to recover from uh, the natural disaster that has to do with, uh, with its colonial status. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to pass the baton to, to Patria. Uh, I'm just going to follow up some of the, of the discussion, really. And, um, but mine is more like a, a, a sort of take on the implications of some of, of, of the things that they have said. But um, basically, Hurricane, I think Maria uncovered sort of racial and economic sort of tensions that are very much rooted in colonialism. Um, so the slow response that, that, that people kept going on about the federal government um, due to perhaps its lack of contempt you know, for, for what Puerto Ricans are um, and, and very much treated as second-class citizens um, bring some sort of overtones and tensions in relation to race, but also in relation to economics. So I'm going to sort of bring some examples that happened throughout that time in relation to that. But, you know, usually or the usual response when... when there are some sort of natural disasters. It's for the federal government, and federal government, we usually tend to use to refer to the United States, um, is to declare a state of emergency, you know, divert personnel, um, funds um, to the affected area. Um, and so some of the reasons, which you perhaps um, are very familiar with, um, that were given for the slow response by the United States sort of administration was that Puerto Rico was an island, you know, and um, Trump just highlighted that it was in, in the middle of an ocean, a very big ocean. <laughs> so the logistics and the readiness of the infrastructure to get there is just much more complicated. But if this isn't, you know, a racial undertone in here, then what it is in, in certain respects. Um, it's not just geographical, you know, and, and we could sort of sense it in, in his way of reacting. But if we look very careful or very closely, um, the first response, and, and just to put this into context, from Trump was um, five days after the hurricane made sort of landfall in Puerto Rico. And his first reaction was basically to blame Puerto Ricans for its own failures due to what was an outdated infrastructure and un unmanageable debt. <laughs> In the meantime, he was um, very busy tweeting and criticizing the National Football League for not um, sort of firing uh, black players who had been protesting the national anthem at a match. Um, so the next insulting tweets are in response to the mayor of San Juan, um, who was calling for more humanitarian aid. Um, he criticized Puerto Ricans at that particular time because you know Puerto Ricans want everything done for them. He praised the US response and call those criticizing the US um, response as a bunch of politically motivated ingrates. We've always called that, you know, <laughs> we're ingrates and so on. So Trump finally visits Puerto Rico 13 days after Hurricane Maria on the 3rd of October. And so by comparison, Trump's visit to Texas and Florida after Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Maria came only four days after the disaster. <coughs> So 13 day, you know, five days to say something about Puerto Rico, four days to get to the affected areas. And there you see the difference in terms of treatment and, and, and how important, you know, how much importance is given to each of these cases. So aid and personnel were very much positioned either before the hurricane landed or immediately after in, in, in Texas and Florida. And, and also, it, it, I don't want to sort of uh, daunt on you on, on too many figures, but you know, the, the contrasting number of personnel and aid deployed in comparison is also striking. You know, from something like 40,000 
um, in just four days to, in the case of Florida, to something like 10,000 people in Puerto Rico in the space of 10 days. So again, you know, you're, you're sort of, well, I leave those with you <laughs> to sort of make your own judgment. So his tweets and subsequent visit to Puerto Rico only consolidated our colonial sort of status. His remarks and that infamous clip of him throwing paper towels at those in a community center in Guaynabo, and Guaynabo is like the posh town in Puerto Rico, right? <laughs> um, after his press conference is sort of, to me, reminiscent of um, those development initiatives of the 40s and the 50s, you know, the white alpha male Westerner whose model of development is imposed over the colonized subjects. Um, but who can't just go to near and just throw them, you know, the products they need. These colonial sort of practices very much, to me, continue to negatively impact over the people of Puerto Rico and very much explain that treatment that we receive from the administration. Um, and in particular, you know, this idea that we are sort of citizens but we don't quite have all the, the sort of same rights and that, that, that you've been explaining, so I'm not repeating on that. But the legacy of colonialism is not only evident in practices that are very much rooted in these racial overtones, but also in this long list of colonial economic policies that you very much summarize, um, Gianni Ali. Um, very much because these policies exist to protect the US interests and drain the island's very little resources and chances of contemplating a very different or even an alternative economic model. The Jones Act is one of those examples. I'm, I'm not going to repeat what has been said about what it is, the Jones Act. But no one foresaw how this um, would have an impact on the response to the crisis. Basically, no foreign aid could arrive directly into the island's ports. Soon afterwards, um, there was a call to suspend and repeal the act. And it was um, not only until the 28th of September when it was temporarily suspended, but only for 10 days. So relief efforts were addressed on the short term. However, the long-term consequences of this law continues to, and here I'm quoting an article by the New York Times, you know, it continues to strangle Puerto Rico sort of recovery and any chances of building a sustainable economy. Um, so that crumbling infrastructure, that aging power grid that, that, that Trump was referring to, is very much the result of this systemic economic control of the island's finances by the United States um, you know, throughout his history, through either tax benefits or incentives. Um, from the Operation Bootstrap, 936 law, or the you know, petrochemical incentives and so on. Um, not only draining the little resources that the island might have or had, but lacking any economic agency over the island's financial state, which is what, what you were saying. This is compounded with this junta o promesa, um, sort of fiscal body, to implement a series of measures to reduce external debt. So this slowly led to the transformation of an economy based very much on production, to an economy that is based in, 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 in sort of um, consumption in certain ways in Puerto Rico. Um, where natural resources, and here I'm perhaps speculating a bit, but natural resources are stretched to the winds of a particular form of capitalism that is reliant on consumption practices rather than on productive forces. Um, and here it's very much how, and, uh, you know, I want to sort of highlight that production still wasn't at, at, at the benefit of Puerto Rico, it was still at the mercy of the United States. So, but it's, it's, it's how the, that has, um, in a way, 
um, helped to erode natural resources. So land that was used for agricultural purposes is then used for building um, uh, infrastructure, um, and part of that infrastructure is large petrochemicals that are polluting the natural resources of the island, or big moles and you know mountains being cut through just to do a mole or a, or, or a chopping centre. And those, to me, have a lot of impact as well in some of or explain some of the sort of saturation of the land, landslides, you know, um, um, floodings, and so on. I'll, I'll leave it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Excellent. So let's move to the next point that it's uh, challenges to rebuild and reconstruct um, the Puerto Rican society. When needs to be reconstructed, what are the challenges? And we're gonna, what we're going to try to do is just take a look at some of the, of the key challenges that needs uh, to be addressed. So, Melissa, if you want to start. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to talk about housing. Um, which is a topic I know a little bit more about, um, even though, you know, I've, I've just kind of been getting up to date with what's been happening in Puerto Rico um, in terms of the, well, the pre-existing housing crisis and, and how it's been exacerbated by, by the hurricane. Um, so the long-standing crisis and these severe austerity measures that we've been talking about have been accompanied um, already by this growing number of evictions that were taking place by a lack and move against affordable housing, both rented and owned, a kind of sustained diminution of social housing stock, pro-real estate and private developer interests, and foreign untaxed capital, mass foreclosures and displacement. So these are things that were happening before the hurricane hit, and they were happening at a very, very fast pace. Um, so the inequalities and the vulnerabilities that were produced by this pre-hurricane context has a direct impact on the very differential post-hurricane social scenario. It exacerbates the wide, widespread dislocation and homelessness of thousands already living in precarious and threatened housing in impoverished communities. So it has, without a doubt, in my opinion, um, turned into a much more brutal form of housing dispossession. And while stats, I think, are very hard to come by at the moment for all sorts of things that are happening in the hurricane, the kind of figures that are being given at the moment is that there's been something like between 40 and 70,000 houses that were completely lost. Um, and that immediately after the hurricane, there were about 35,000 people that went into shelters. Um, but that number doesn't actually capture the people that went into their families and their friends' homes. So actually, this is a really distorted statistic that doesn't talk about refuge and shelter as something that exceeds uh, shelters in the official kind of definition of what a shelter is. Um, nor does it account for things like the closing down of nursing homes, which were pretty massive after the hurricane too, uh, or the many older adults that had to be taken out of nursing homes that weren't closed and put back into their family's house or moved into the United States because of dire and emergency medical needs. Um, and the stress of the people that did go into shelters, right, into these temporary homes that are very crowded, can have these strains on personal relationships, on family relationships. They can lead even to instances of domestic violence, and the rate of domestic violence has grown massively after the hurricane also. So these things are not separate. They're all interconnected, of course. Um, and it's these kind of invisibilities that we don't see in the statistics that are very multiple, they're very complex, that I think are really crucial, actually, to think about. Um, because this is the way in which the concept of home loss kind of gets constructed 
as something that is just material. And in constructing it as something that's just material, it's minimized and it's presented as a technical solution, right? Um, and if we don't take account of these larger structural problems that we've been talking about, uh, these histories of inequality, of crisis, uh, and also, of course, of the deep uh, psychic and prof uh, profound psychic dimensions of home loss, um, that uh, we're not really thinking even about how this constitutes a public uh, mental health crisis. Um, and so I want to turn to some examples of that simplification or how I see that simplification having happened in, in a few uh, examples. Um, there's many, many more examples. I just picked a few for today. So there's this idea first that if we would only build better in the future, right? If we build sturdier homes and if we build to code uh, in safer places, so the so-called problem of informal construction in vulnerable areas, if we kind of fix that by building better, um, uh, the problem would be solved. Um, now, this is supported, this idea is supported by FEMA regulations, the way that FEMA policies work the way that they give out loans to people is about supporting this view that you have to then build to code or you have to build in a better way, otherwise you won't get a loan. Uh, there's severe restrictions in, in that sense. And what I want to point out is that I, I don't think that that's a problem in the sense that, of course, poor construction leads to um, devastation, depending on where, where you're constructing. Nobody can, can question that. But how the government simply doesn't take into account the financial reality of people's lives um, and the desperation to get back on track if they have a solution, an informal solution, to get him back on track because they don't have the luxury of time or they don't have the luxury of money to wait for that code information to get to them, which, by the way, it's a code that hasn't been updated since 2011, even though the government is legally uh, supposed to be updating it every three years. Um, it doesn't actually take account of people's capacity to rebuild their own homes or communities, and it doesn't conceptualize the home of course, as something that's part of a much vaster uh, infrastructure, social, economic, and political. Um, and so really we have to ask ourselves, what use is a home uh, as shelter if we don't have electricity, if you don't have water, if you don't have a road to get somewhere? So it's a kind of conceptualization of the home that's completely disconnected from anything else. Um, secondly, there's this kind of similar logic at play uh, with the FEMA, with the emergency provision of the so-called blue tarps, um, or these temporary roofs. Um, there's lots of problems that have been raised about how these blue roofs and temporary roofs have been delivered, about it being very slow. Um, I'm not going to go into those kind of complaints. What I wanted uh, to raise is that even when you do put up a blue tarp, so the people that are lucky enough to have, to have gotten them very late, um, and at that point, the problem is considered to be kind of technically solved, right? So these people now have a, they have a roof, so you know, that, that's taken care of. Um, you know, the water in the homes is still not potable, right? There's about 500,000 homes that still don't have potable water in their homes. They have no electricity. Businesses don't have electricity, so a lot of pe these people don't have jobs. Um, so then, does a house with a blue tarp, so you have a roof, um, is that a house that's livable? Um, or what constitutes livability? And which bodies are assumed to be kind of more resilient uh, in the spectrum of, of life and death um, with, with the concept of a roof over your head? Um, and also, just more practically, what comes after, right? The repair of each roof has an average cost of $10,000. How should resident ba residents balance their priorities between investing in those $10,000? When will that even be possible, right? Um, with a very little income or prospect of income. Um, just a couple of more minutes. Yeah. Um, the other one has to do with this kind of mass foreclosure crisis. Uh, that's very much upon us at the moment. Um, it's coming. 
um, it's being talked about, uh, and it has to weigh with, do with the way that mortgage relief is offered uh, in a post-hurricane and post-devastation kind of context where banks, the federal government, and private loan providers typically offer this three-month moratorium. Um, and so you have to start repaying your mortgage after three months. Um, and much like the kind of informal construction issue, this is a kind of blanket policy solution, a kind of technical solution, if you will, that invisibilizes the specificity and the differences between people's um, struggles and needs. So everybody just has to start paying mortgages again, independently of what you're going through. Um, it doesn't take into account that you know after a disaster of this magnitude, people will not have the means to pay back after three months, the majority, maybe not in a year or two years, right? Um, and we can't kind of, it shouldn't be lost on us, the parallels with the unforgivable debt uh, that Puerto Rico is facing and the fact that these people are also now facing at an individual level an unforgivable uh, mortgage debt. Um, and there's a kind of connected issue here, which is that because there wasn't any electricity, there wasn't any internet, word of mouth um, spread and people thought that everybody had a moratorium, but that wasn't true. And now people are finding out that they were supposed to have been paying and all those people are now facing eviction or they're having to pay. Their credit uh, standing has been lost. They don't have money to pay for the lawyers that could inform them about how to, how to deal with this situation. So that, you know, there's, there's a whole issue there. Um, I think I might leave it there because we need to move on. I had another point, but I'll leave it there. Thanks. So, so very, very briefly, I'm going to then address uh, two more. The first one, the need to rethink um, energy demand and energy supply, right? Uh, and I was reading the, this statistics that for me was, was crazy, uh, and it's that if you take a look at the consumption level uh, of power of each Puerto Rican, it is about 200, 230% more than the world average. And if you don't believe me, you just go to the NASA, take a look at the satellite, satellite photo at night, and you'll see a shiny dot in the, in the eastern part of the Caribbean, and that's, uh, and that's Puerto Rico. And of course, if we want to have a future, a planet Earth to live, not only Puerto Rico, but the rest of us will need to, to, to rethink the demand of energy and the demand of, uh, of other goods. And in terms, in terms of, the, uh, of the supply, it's uh, the, the, the case of Puerto Rico, one of the main problems in the production of energy is the, the high level of dependence in, in fossil fuels. And it makes pretty no sense that a country in the Caribbean, sunlight, basically all time, a lot of wind, the country, a country that is full of rivers, have almost none uh, energy renewable uh, in, in, in the island. I was now a couple of uh, weeks ago in Puerto Rico going from my hometown to the west, um, and there is a wind farm in, in a town, uh, I think it is in Sabana Grande, in the south part of, uh, of Puerto Rico. Yes. And... Uh, well, that didn't amaze me because that happened also before, but there were only, I count, five uh, wind turbines on of dozens that are there. And this is a big issue. If, if you have some at least, well, keep them on all, all the time. The yes, yes. I imagine that some of them were damaged, but the, the, the thing is that the problem is not now, is that at least for me that I studied in the West every time that I 
past, before yeah, before the hurricanes, they were, uh, many of them, just off. Uh, and, yeah. And also uh, an issue of decentralization in the production of, of, of power. Not only the high dependence on fossil fuels, but the, la the vast majority of, uh, of, of power in Puerto Rico is produced in the south, but the vast majority of the consumption is in the north in the metropolitan area. And what happened? There is a huge mountain range in the middle, so you need to distribute that. Uh, and, 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 and many researchers in Puerto Rico have been highlighting this problem for, for decades, arguing for the need to have small grids all over Puerto Rico. That way, a hurricane hits, distribution lines are off in, in the floor, yes, but then it's easier to connect especially rural areas and remote areas to smaller grids all over uh, Puerto Rico. Now, moving to another problem that is mass unemployment and rapid out-migration that I think that could be considered uh, both of them together. Well, we of course know that after the hurricane, if there is no power, there will be less shops open, um, less um, industries open, so, so less, less jobs, right? Uh, yeah, less hotels. So basically less, less jobs. Uh, and, and scholars and the media have been presenting the, pro the problem of unemployment and how this has been exacerbated after the hurricane as, as, as a big issue. And that's completely true. But I think that we need to go deeper and understand that there is a structural problem in Puerto Rico both by the private sector and the public sector, and is that there's not enough jobs in Puerto Rico. Um, the development model that was praised in the 50s and that, the, that Daniele talked about, this Operation Bootstrap, that was supposed to create a lot of good jobs, did not, they didn't arrive. If you take a look at the statistics, you look that in the 1950s, about 50% of the population were in the active labor market. Decent figures, not great, but decent. Nowadays, it's less than 40%. Uh, so a development model that was supposed to be labor-intensive became one of <coughs> capital-intensive, just producing a couple of high-paid jobs, leaving the majority of the population to part-time jobs, uh, living on a minimum salary if they were lucky to find a job in the, in the, formal, in the formal sector. So I think that mass unemployment or the lack of employment is a man-made uh, problem that, yes, was exacerbated by the by the Hurricane Maria, but was not created by, by Hurricane Maria. And of course, this is one of the reasons, and this is how I link it with mass migration, of why many Puerto Ricans just decide to pack their bags and move to the U.S. Having or being U.S. citizens, you just, well, not just, that involves a lot of, a lot of issues, but it's easier than other countries that have to apply for visas. You take a plane, you move uh, to the U.S. And this has been a big issue in Puerto Rico, mass migration. Been losing in the last decade since the Depression started in 2006, about 1% each year of its population. And this has been increasing. In 2014, it was 2 point something. In 2015, it was 2.6. And recently, the, um, the Hunter College, uh, the Puerto Rican Studies Center in Hunter College in the US, um, estimated that Puerto Rico will last between 110,000 to 210,000 residents a year. 
that's between 3.5 and 6.5% of its population lost <laughs> annually. Uh, and uh, yesterday in the fiscal plan, and, and I'll just pass the baton, the, 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 the government of Puerto Rico in the fiscal plan, they estimated that the next three years they will lost an average of 5% each year. So the numbers are there both in the government of Puerto Rico and in, in, in the university. So, Janiali. Okay, so very briefly, because um, I'm gonna talk about public services uh, in general, um, but again, see, very briefly. Um, First, education. Uh, of course, the, the situation with, the, uh, with energy, with the lack of power, is, is affecting all public services. So this is it's a pretty fundamental, transversal uh, 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 problem that it affects uh, how the, the government's role in, in, in the services that people actually get. Um, just, uh, just a data, uh, a fact, uh, from two weeks ago, from the uh, 1,107 schools that are still operating in the public department of education, I'm not accounting the pr private uh, schools, 680 remain without power. So you can imagine uh, uh, the concerns in that department. But that's not the only concern. As we would keep talking about, Puerto Rico's economic crisis had already been shaking the island's school system months before Hurricane Maria forcing, and that happened last um, um, summer, forcing the closure of nearly 200 schools last year. And some of them you can say, well, if, you you, if you're losing population, probably you need to close some schools and make a rearrangement. But the, the way it, 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 it was done, it was so rapid and so fast that and it didn't make sense for some of the areas. And even some of the schools that were newer, they were closing, so there was, a speculation, but it's not a speculation anymore. It's quite clear that some of these schools, they want to sell it, they want to privatize it, and probably create some charter schools, and that's kind of the new model. And uh, it's interesting to see now, and this is kind of more like a question, but what's gonna happen, and, and there are hints um, the, from the public officers, the, the Secretary of Education, that they're seeing the model post-Katrina in New Orleans where most of the schools are now charter schools. Not entire, entirely, but most of them are charter schools. And charter schools, you can argue either way, but it's, 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 it's a question that I just want to put it up there, that privatization is not only affecting some of these agencies uh, that, for, that bring basic needs like power or water and the other de de dependencies, it's also going to affect schools, the school system. Um, so, um, and there's a quote here that I have from the secretary saying that it basically that it, it is a, a good opportunity to, to create a new model, um, but I won't go into that. Second one is security. Security is a, it's an interesting issue because um, well, it's, it's, it's tragic that yes, theft and other violent crisis, uh, crimes are increasing. Um, some of them are very related to what's going on with the power uh, system because lots of people are uh, uh, they're losing their generators. So, and the fact that it, the, the island is basically in, in a blackout and you have all these pockets that are still without power, you just can imagine, and the sense of security in transportation, etc. But also last, last December, there's uh, uh, thousands of police officers called out sick. And this is, they call this the blue 
blue uh, blue blue um, and the reason is because um, many of these police officers uh, had to work 12 to 18 hour shifts uh, with no days off and, and the promise that they, they, they would get paid by FEMA when, when FEMA reimbursed the government when they're saying that people are actually not getting the, that money. Um, so many of them, because they have, they're, they're not getting paid, the officers decided to use their accumulative uh, sick leave. Um, so they're protesting. There's a lot of insecurity around the island. Um, the presence, the the court, the, the cuarteles, I how to say that. Um, they did not running effectively. Um, but it's the first time that police officers are becoming more critical of the government, and it's and it's, it's, it's decision to drain their pension funds to repay Puerto Rico's debt. Uh, it remains uncertain if the police officers will join forces with other public workers who, who share the same concerns and they have been struggling and, and well, they have been resisting these austerity policies for the past few years. Um, police officers never actually joined. <laughs> and, and even, yeah, yesterday I had a meeting with the president of, of this junta and they weren't very happy with the response from the junta saying basically that no. You, your pension uh, it, is really in danger. So it's really interesting to see this change and we, we still don't know what's gonna happen. Um, and finally, health concerns, yeah, health. And already Melissa pointed out, she, she mentioned it, how, yes, uh, with, just imagine with uncertainty and in this crisis comes a lot of, uh, well, if it affects a whole entire population, mental health of this population. Um, I won't go into depth uh, talking about the, the, the health uh, system of Puerto Rico, which again, it's, it's different, it's, it's the same from the US, but it's affected by the colonial status because we get less um, resources from Medicaid and Medicare. Um, well, I'm just gonna read very briefly, but Puerto Rico is much poorer than any American state and relies more on those public programs like community health centers, Medicaid and Medicare. But because it is a territory, uh, it gets less money and, and resources from the federal government to fund these programs. Um, and the statistics says that Puerto Rico is actually more sicker. They, they tend to have more disabilities or diabetes. Um, another, Problem with this, and you, you have to think not only the services, well, who provide the services, the hospitals, the doctors? Well, there is a, a huge exodus of doctors going to the mainland, to going to the United States. Um, this is not new. The statistics says that last year, six, near 600 doctors left the island, the year before 500, the year before 350, and I have numbers from the last 12 years, and it's, it just increases. And it's not only because the getting paid less is just the conditions to work. They are very difficult. They say um, uh, there's tons of bureaucracy. It's very difficult to manage what you know what a doctor has to do in Puerto Rico versus someone in the main in in the in the mainland and in the United States. Also, the system how it works to support more the insurance companies while deciding not to pay. And um, and the most problematic one is the exodus of the specialists, um, and and actually this is actually beneficial for the insurance companies because you can say, well, I'm not going to pay this very expensive 
procedure because I simply, uh, we, we just don't have the doctor. So uh, just in, I won't go, go into that, but just imagine what this is ha doing to, to the entire population who are their lack of doctors and nurses. And also there's, you know, people, the universities in Puerto Rico are producing on a lot of these professionals and they're high quality professionals but they just simply live in the island. Um, and finally, um, as Melissa mentioned before, the mental uh, crisis the, is, is just, uh, there are tons of people who are talking about anxiety and depression and, and it's not that it didn't happen before, it's just that the hurricane exacerbated what already, already was happening. Um, and we had a video, but I think we don't have time to show it, but is it talks about the, uh, the, the, the increase of, of suicides, how the, the total of, of suicides are actually uh, increasing after, after Maria. And it's a very impactful video because it, it interviews the people who actually manage the emergency calls from the, the suicide centers. AMSCA is the, is the name of this. Um, and um, it's kind of like this hidden uh, aftermath as well because a lot of reporters when they go to the island they talk about the power in the houses and but mental illness is something that not many people pay attention and uh, is, is, is really uh, uh, a problem and it's getting worse because there's a lot of lack of resources. Yeah, I just went through a lot of <laughs> in just one minute. Um, I didn't mention the death toll because, and someone asked me before, there's also some controversies with uh, mortality rates that the government are saying that only 64 people die from direct impact from the hurricane, but there are reports from the Centro Periodismo Investigativo and other sources, um, uh, media sources from the U.S. saying that it's probably more than a thousand of people. Um, if you can account this suicide and you have kind of people who, because of the lack of power, they, they couldn't, um, well, they couldn't have the, the, if they need dialysis or oxygen and, and, and things like this. So um, there's a question regarding that. It's like the lack of will to really disclose the correct amount. The people want to know their debt. And also people are burying the, the debt. So um, without being certified. And so you, can, you might say, it's a natural cause, but it's really also an, an effect of, of, of what happened with Maria. 